Let me start by asking you guys a question. What do you long for? Or to be more specific, what is the one thing you desire more than anything in life? Like if you only had this, you'd be satisfied. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's a famous quote many of us know from Jim Elliot. Right? Jim Elliot was a, was a man who on New Year's Day of 1956 had his whole life in front of him. He had just turned 28. He was a graduate of Wheaton College, a gifted public speaker, and a zealous lover of Jesus. He had been married to his godly wife, Elizabeth, for just over two years, and their daughter, Valerie, was 10 months old. Jim had his entire future in front of him, and he seemed to be following his parents' instruction to be adventurous and live for Christ. Fast forward seven days, Jim Elliott and his four missionary companions were attempting to bring the gospel to a tribe of 60 people that had never heard of Jesus, the Waurani tribe. It was on this day on a sandbar called Palm Beach in the Kureri River of Ecuador that five Waurani Indians speared to death Jim and his friends. In a blink of an eye, four young wives became widows. Nine children lost their daddies. And these five men lost their lives and promising futures. The world called it a nightmare of tragedy. Were they right? Was this an example of five wasted lives? Here's what Jim's wife, Elizabeth Elliot, said to the world calling this a nightmare of tragedy. She said, quote, The world did not recognize the truth of the second clause in Jim Elliot's creed. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So let me ask you again, what do you long for? What is your deepest desire? What is the one thing that you need more than anything in this life? That if you had this thing, you would be satisfied. We have been in this series called Together We Are. We have been reminded who we are as the church and what we are called, what we are called to do. I don't know about you guys, but this has been such a great recalibration for me. As the church, we must know our purpose, how easy it is to get off track. So far, we've seen in this series that as the church, together we are pursuing God's glory from John 13 through 17. That together we are built up from Ephesians 2. And last week, we were exhorted from Ephesians 4 that together we are one. This week, I want to remind all of us through a twin parable in Matthew's gospel, something we as the church already know, but can easily forget. And that's this, that we, the church, together are joyfully treasuring 
Christ. Joyfully treasuring Christ. My burden this morning in our series about the church is to explain what three verses in Matthew's gospel mean by what they say. And in doing so, I hope to show you from two parables in Matthew 13 that having Jesus as your greatest treasure, your heart's desire, is worth not having something else, anything else, whatever it might be, as your greatest treasure, your heart's desire, your deepest longing. What do you long for? If you would open your Bibles and turn to Matthew's gospel, we'll be in Matthew 13 verses 44 through 46. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Jesus speaking. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Before we unpack this parable, I need to say a few things about parables. We as 21st century American Christians are very linear in our thinking. We love passages in the New Testament with rich theology and words we can understand. One point building off another to make whatever case the author is trying to make. That's why we're really excited to be jumping into the book of Romans in two weeks. But a lot of Jesus' theology actually comes to us through parables. Even though all my three-year-old daughter Eden wants from me and Holly is to tell her stories all day long, parables are not the language we we typically speak to each other in. Jesus' audience, though, were very familiar with parable. These parables, these people came from an oral tradition. And a parable was a great way to paint a beautiful picture and communicate truth that would be hard to forget. We also need to note that when dealing with a text like this, what we don't want to do is look at these three verses and build an entire theology upon them. We must take the text in its literary context, what what literally comes before and after, and its canonical context, what the entire Bible says about the topic. And here, Jesus is doing an extended teaching. This entire chapter, chapter 13, is a single sermon. Picture it. The crowded Galilean lakeside makes Jesus possibly use a boat as a pulpit and begins to teach the crowd about the kingdom of heaven through parables. During this entire discourse, Jesus is laser focused on the kingdom of heaven. Each parable is designed to be unified and give us a full picture of this kingdom. We must take these parables to be one diamond. Each parable showing us a different facet of that diamond. And in chapter 13, this diamond is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. And in our twin parables, the facet we will be looking at is the worth. The worth of this kingdom. 
Jesus will sometimes use twin parables to reinforce one point. He does this earlier with the mustard seed and the leaven. Right? In those parables, the point was that even though the kingdom's inauguration looks small and insignificant, it will eventually attain significant proportions. As we look at our twin parables of the hidden treasure and pearl of great value, it's not just that the kingdom is valuable like a treasure or that the kingdom is valuable like this pearl, but rather the kingdom of heaven can be compared to the situation of a man finding a treasure and the response that kind of discovery calls for. Or the kingdom of heaven can be compared to the situation of a valuable pearl found by a merchant and the kind of action that kind of discovery calls for. These two parables start and finish the exact same way. Look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. Look how they end. Verse 44, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 46, went and sold all that he had and bought it. In both these parables, we have someone finding something so valuable that they sell everything to attain this one thing. So let's start with the hidden treasure. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The point here is simple. The kingdom of heaven is so valuable, it's worth giving up anything to attain. I I, I chose to be a student at Denver Seminary initially because of one man, New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg. The first class I had at Denver Seminary was the parables of Jesus with Dr. Blomberg. I learned from him that this parable is what he calls a simple one-point parable. One character which gives us one point. We must be careful not to allegorize everything we see in parables, which was an issue actually in the early church when handling parables. If we allegorize every little thing, who knows where we might end up? The atonement, being made right with God, could be seen as something we can buy. Or this man's ethics, which seem kind of shady, could be taken out of context. The point is, this man was not looking for anything and yet stumbled upon the greatest treasure imaginable. Oh, if you're a Christian in here this morning, if you're part of Christ's church, you can surely relate. And what does he do? Since he can't just take the treasure because the land doesn't belong to him, he covers it up. He sells everything he owns and buys that field. That's how valuable this treasure is. The worth of this treasure is priceless. Or the pearl of great value. Look at verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So here we have a different story. This man doesn't stumble upon a surprise, but in his search for fine pearls, he does come across a pearl unlike any other. And this man knows pearls. He's a pearl merchant. (laughs) But the worth of the pearl that he comes across is so valuable 
that he sells everything and pays full price for it. He sold all he had, most likely including lots of other pearls. For this precious pearl, it was one of a kind. The meaning for these two parables is simply that the kingdom of heaven is so valuable, it's worth giving up anything to attain. But can we get even more specific than that? I think we can. The treasure and pearl speak of supreme value and worth. That's obvious from the text. Both the man and the merchant sell everything to get this. But if the kingdom of heaven is a diamond and each aspect or each facet, a different aspect of it, let's do a little theology. Who brings the value and the worth to this kingdom? What is the real treasure of this kingdom? Turn back one chapter to chapter 12. Matthew 12, before we get to chapter 13, with Jesus' parables about the kingdom, he mentions something very important here in chapter 12. The Pharisees are accusing him for casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 25, chapter 12. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom had come upon them because the king had come. What's the real treasure of this kingdom? The king. There's no kingdom without the king. Being a part of this kingdom is awesome, the kingdom of heaven. It truly is, even in this in-between time, the already and not yet. And when this kingdom comes in all its glory, it's going to be so much better. Redeemed bodies, redeemed earth, no tears, no pain, no sorrow. Come, Lord Jesus, come, right? But we have to understand that what makes this kingdom so wonderful is Jesus the king. He's the treasure. He's the pearl of great value. He's the treasure worth giving up anything to attain. Listen to how one pastor theologian, John Piper, explains this treasure of heaven. He says, in question form, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? If your answer is yes, then you don't know the treasure of this kingdom. 
Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? These parables are not calling you to sell everything you have. Although they might be. The reason Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell everything he had and come follow him is because his greatest treasure was his wealth. What these parables do call you to do is to ask yourself, what is my greatest treasure? Or like I asked earlier, what is the one thing you desire more than anything in this life? Like if you only had this, you would be satisfied. Ultimately, what do you long for? Being a Christian means that we have stumbled upon the greatest treasure imaginable, worth giving up anything to attain. This ought to define us, church. This ought to define us. The church is not simply the people with all the right answers to life's toughest questions. The ones who live morally upright lives, the one who lives, who, who, who lives sacrificially and give generously. Though these things ought to care, characterize us as followers of Christ, ultimately, we, the church, have the greatest treasure. Let that sink in. We have Christ, the greatest treasure, the treasure this world needs desperately. And so together, we are joyfully treasuring Christ. But there's also a key phrase in this text that I missed on purpose. I don't think it's the main point of these parables, but it's also not an accident that Jesus said it and that Matthew wrote it down. And the concept is all over the rest of scriptures. So I'd be foolish not to spend some time dealing with it. And the fact that it's also in our mission statement at Redemption Parker makes it extremely important to highlight. Redemption Parker, our mission statement, is that we exist to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy, the joy of all people. Look back at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, in his joy, or other translations, because of joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In his joy. Jesus is not just the great treasure. He's the all-satisfying treasure. He's our soul's delight. With this treasure, we can sing with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing, nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Or like the great African theologian Augustine said, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. The Christian life is not giving up the fun, satisfying life of pleasure and happiness only to enter the life of duty, dead orthodoxy, and rule-keeping. No, perish that thought. The Christian life is about joy inexpressible and full of glory. Supreme satisfaction only comes when you walk with God, when Jesus is your heart's desire. 
The Christian life is a life of joy. And just so we're on the same page, what I don't mean by joy is an extreme excitement and happiness because life couldn't be better. That we always look like we're 10 Red Bulls deep because life is amazing. We we can't stop smiling and, and lifting up our arms because everything is going our way. That's not Christian joy. That's the prosperity gospel. Life can be hard. Many of us know this firsthand. We live in the already not yet. Depression is a real thing. Suffering is promised and dark days are many in this fallen world. We live in the domain of the tragic for crying out loud. But the joy that I'm talking about is a joy where we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Most of you guys don't know me yet. Like Holly communicated, we're thrilled to get to know y'all and be known by you guys. Um, But when, when I left California to come out to Colorado... And some of you guys heard that and already don't like me, so we got to grab coffee. But when, when I left California and came out to Colorado seven years ago, I was right in the middle of my valley of the shadow of death. I was in a season of suffering. Often I didn't want to be alive. Many of my prayers to God on prayer walks was that he would take me out with a lightning bolt. Give me some relief down here. But I can truly say, even in some of the worst moments of that season, I had joy. That wasn't a kind of joy that made me chipper. But But it was a joy that was deeply rooted in the gospel and very much related to things I could not see. The kind of joy I think that God is after is a deep trust in him. Even when life hurts, and sometimes life hurts badly. It's not about how passionate your joy is or even how strong your faith is. It's about the object of your joy and your faith. And that object is Jesus. He's the man of sorrows. He's the reason for our joy. So don't look to your emotions to see what kind of Christian you are. Look to Jesus, even when you feel like darkness is your only companion. In his joy, or because of joy, we must understand that glorifying God and our joy are not contrary to each other, but rather our delight in God, soul-satisfying joy, is the way in which we glorify him. So we can be people who pursue pleasure with all our hearts, but we pursue this pleasure in Christ. We taste and see that the Lord is good, so we keep coming back for more. When we understand that enjoying God is how we glorify him, then we understand with the author of Hebrews that the, the, the pleasures of sin are truly fleeting. It's not a choice between pleasure or God. It's a choice between weak, fleeting pleasure and soul satisfaction in Christ. True, lasting pleasure in his joy. 
For many of us, the things we long for with deep desire, I can't live without this kind of desire, are usually good things that we've received from God. Our families, our health, our jobs, our careers, investments, friends. And then, of course, indwelling sin brings a host of other tempting lesser treasures. Recognition, approval, comfort, materialism, Instagram likes, fresh fleshly gratifications. This list is endless. But the good gifts, the good gifts from God, they couldn't become ultimate treasures, right? They're from God. We all know the story of Abraham's second call in Genesis 22. His first call comes to us in in Genesis 12 when God calls him out of the land of Ur and into the land of Canaan. But in Genesis 22, after God not only establishes but reaffirmed a covenant with Abraham, but also confirmed the promise by giving him a son, Isaac. In Genesis 22, the son of promise, Isaac, is no longer a boy. He's an adolescent a young man, and God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son. We know this was a test of faith for Abraham and ultimately a type that points to another father-son sacrifice. But was there more going on in Abraham's heart that we can learn from here? I love what Tim Keller says about what's going on in Genesis 22, Keller says, quote, Abraham got another call from God and it could not have been more shocking. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. This was the ultimate test. Isaac was now everything to Abraham, as God's call makes clear. He does not refer to the boy as Isaac, but as your son, your only son, whom you love. Abraham's affection had become adoration. Previously, Abraham's meaning in life had been dependent on God's word. Now it was becoming dependent on Isaac's love and well-being. The center of Abraham's life was shifting. God was not saying you cannot love your son, but that you must not turn a loved one into a counterfeit God. Oh, how easy this can be. Right? My temptation is... With my lovely wife, Holly, and my beautiful daughters, Eden and Shiloh. I need to guard my heart from putting them in a place that is reserved for my supreme treasure, Christ. And we can all think of different gifts from God that we can easily turn into a counterfeit God. A precious gift from our gracious Father, yes, but a false ultimate treasure. We bring God the most glory when we realize the worth of his son and treasure him above all else. This is why church, together, we are joyfully treasuring Christ. I think Dr. Sam Storms defines our phrase, in his joy, 
best when he says, quote, God is most glorified in us when our knowledge and experience of him ignite a forest fire of joy that consumes all competing pleasures. And he alone becomes the treasure that we prize. Passionate and joyful admiration of God is the aim of our existence. If God is to be supremely glorified in us, it's critically essential that we be supremely glad in him and what he has done for us in Jesus. That we be supremely glad in him and what he has done for us in Jesus. What he has done for us in Jesus. This is the anchor of our joy and the means by which we even receive the treasure in the first place, right? Church, the the gospel Sometimes we can lose the joy that Jesus offers because we've moved past the gospel. But the Christian life starts with and must live out of the gospel. Seeing Jesus as your ultimate treasure means we cannot graduate from the gospel. We love him because he first loved us. And what's the gospel? God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do we realize what this means? All this entails. The gospel means that now all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. So let let me remind you this morning of a couple gospel implications. It means that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of you guys need to hear that again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that in Christ, by his power, he has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. It means that we who were once alienated to God and haters of God now have peace with him. It means that we are adopted into the family of God and we can literally call the God, the creator of the universe, Father. It means that we have been justified sanctified. It means that all things work together for our good and his glory. It means that the Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. It means that we can cast our burdens on him and he promises to sustain us. It means that our suffering is not for nothing, but is actually producing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It means that not only is Christ our treasure, But check this out. We are his treasured possession, his royal priesthood, his holy nation. Church, we're the bride of Christ. That's scandalous. It means that we are the temple of God and that the third person of the Godhead lives in us. Let that truth jack you up this week. The Holy Spirit of God indwells you. It means that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. It means that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And 
that's just to name a few. The Bible is full of promises that are true for us, his new covenant family, because of the gospel. For those of us in here this morning who know Jesus, I hope your hearts are welling up with joy right now. Treasure Christ. That's our application. Treasure Christ. Together, let's joyfully treasure Christ. Which we do in three ways. So first, we treasure Christ by delighting in him. So enjoy him. Savor him. To live is Christ. To die is gain, Paul says. Why in the world would death be gain, Paul? Because we get to see our treasure face to face. And be with him for eternity. Let's stop treasuring anything less. Second, we treasure him by telling others. Praising something completes the joy. We've all experienced this, right? For me, last year I experienced this in a very real way. We got Disney Plus. We were late to the game. And I saw Hamilton. Um, Anyone seen Hamilton? Okay, some of you guys. But within a week, within a week of watching this, I don't know if there was a single person in my world that didn't know that I saw Hamilton and that they need to see Hamilton. My friends, my family, my coworkers, even when I walked into the barber, I asked him, you got Disney Plus? <laughs> or my coworkers, you guys like history and hip-hop? <laughs> Why do we do this? Because telling others completes the joy. Listen to how C.S. Lewis puts it. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Well, the church, whom Jesus is Lord and supreme treasure, completes the joy of treasuring him by telling others about him. We can't help but to proclaim the excellencies of him who saved us. And third, we treasure Christ by enjoying the gifts he gives us. Family, friends, food, wine, creation, your job. We treasure Christ by enjoying his gifts. We get clarity in our lives when Christ becomes our ultimate treasure We can now enjoy the things of the world without worshiping them. So go love your family to the glory of God. Or go to In-N-Out Burger and get a double-double animal style and praise God who gave you your taste buds and the flavors he created. We treasure Christ by enjoying the gifts he gives us. And if you're in here this morning and you don't know Jesus as the great treasure of your life, listen to Jesus' own words from Matthew's gospel. He's unlike any master you've ever served. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. In heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Will you be like the man who, after coming across this treasure, in his joy forsook 
everything else to get in on this. Take Jesus this morning to be your great treasure by faith alone. Here's what the Apostle Paul said after he came to experience the treasure of heaven. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus is so valuable, Redemption Parker, that he's worth giving up anything to attain. In the end, we will never say following Jesus wasn't worth it. Would we be a church that can say like Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you that you are the supreme treasure. Thank you that our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Lord, thank you that you have made life and intimacy and fellowship with you possible through the cross, through your obedient life and your sacrificial death and your resurrection. Lord, help us. All of us need to be reoriented to who our treasure is, to be reminded that you are so sweet. Help us to fight off these other treasures, many of them good gifts, but not to be placed in a place of worship, God. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would be our treasure, that together we as a church would treasure joyfully treasure Christ. Amen.